This episode is brought to you by Philly Gemstones. you grow up being a Scandinavian, of course, you're going to be influenced by your own cultural heritage. So there is that that Viking inheritance. and Definitely. And that sort of purity, that simplicity of style, isn't there? It's very Scandinavian. I, I mean, almost everything my mom has made has this very Scandinavian, simple, clean lines. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. I'm delighted to be talking today about a designer who has fascinated me from the first moment I saw one of her deceptively simple spiralling silver jewels that seems so modern and alive and expressive. The Swedish designer Viviana Torun Bulof Ube was born in 1927 and she was a groundbreaking woman in every aspect of her life. First of all, she started an altogether different style in jewellery, simple silver jewellery set with beach stones with a purity of form. She was a fiercely independent feminist who had passionate love affairs and marriages. She was someone who only ever really wanted to be in her workshop creating things, who became a global legend. She was a very early advocate of diversity and inclusion. And she was winner of the Frederick Lunning Prize, which is basically the Nobel Prize for arts and crafts. It's the highest honour a craftsperson can have. And she's always been slightly enigmatic to me, as well as fascinating. So I am so delighted that we are joined here today by her daughter, the musician Marcia Coleman, Bulof Huber, um, who knew her better than anyone else. And she is going to shed some light on Viviana's fascinating art and her life. Marcia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I feel very honoured and um, pleased. And where, where are you speaking from this morning? Um, I live in Copenhagen, so I'm speaking actually from my home. Which is very apt, given that um, Viviana worked for so many years for George Jensen, creating, I mean, incredible collections of pieces that they still sell and still reproduce, don't they? Yes, they do. The watch has been the flagship of her creations, the open watch, mm -hmm. which was taken into the George Jensen collection when, from the beginning when she started working with George Jensen in 67. And um, it came into production in 69. And it's still um, one of the most copied watches in the world. Because I think, you know, that watch isn't perfect example of her extraordinary groundbreaking design because she said it was the relentlessness of time that she hated so she wanted to design a watch with no numbers and it was really originally intended to be an ornament wasn't it and she only put seconds hands on it and that was um she wanted it stripped of everything and not to feel that pressure of time exactly um she actually admitted it to a some kind of a i don't know if it was a competition or something 
at the Louvre. And um, was it was it the Musée des Arts Décoratifs? Exactly. And um, she was actually pregnant with me when she made it. And they were supposed to um, admit a piece representing something they did not like. And my mom, she did not like time. And that's why she made this watch, which was open on the side, which had the symbolism of not being caught by time. And then it only had a blank face where you could look at yourself, which was like a mirror. It's a mirror face. So you would be introspective. And then it only had the second hand, which symbolized that you should live in the now, every second, now, now, now. And this was before Eckhart Tolle, you know, way before. So she had something going on there already. And it's very hard to reinvent the watch. Yes. You know, there is just a design for a watch. So to turn it on its head, and as you say, for it still to be the most copied watch in the world is kind of extraordinary. Yeah, and with you know, even with numbers and without... I've seen it in a market in Indonesia in um, light blue plastic. She wouldn't like that, would she? I, I don't think she cared at that time, <laughs> you know. So I wanted to know from you what it was like growing up with an artist like your mother, because how easy for you was it to associate your mother with the artist? I mean, did you separate them or were they just seamlessly interlinked through your childhood? They were kind of seamlessly interlinked, but I was never aware of her, well, Yeah, if you can call it fame or anything. She was just, you know, she was mom and she was sitting in her workshop and she was working um, relentlessly and um, a single mother with two children in, in foreign countries, um, you know, raising two half-brown children. And it was not easy. So for me, you know, she was just our loving mom who cared for us and, and, and was very warm and sweet and, and um, affectionate and, um, well, could also be strict. But... Um, no, I mean, we, we, I used to play a lot in her workshop and with all Did the, you? Yes, all the little drops she had and, and, and all these little boxes with tiny compartments, little drawers in them where you could pull out you know, all the little silver things she had pre-made or, and, and, and little screws for the earrings. And it, it was just, it was so much fun. You know, I used to have my dolls and puppets and, and little doggies and cats and whatever I, I played with. It, it was fun. So did, you, did she teach you to make jewellery at that time? Well, at a later age, I learned how to make earrings, like the earrings with the drops. Mm -hmm. So that was fun. And she grew up in Sweden with a very artistic family, didn't she? Yes. Did that influence her? I'm sure it did. I mean, her mother was a sculptress and um, also played the piano. And um, I, I mean, her mother could do anything. She worked with wood. She, she gardened. Um, she had amazing, beautiful roses and flowers and uh, was very versatile. And her father was an architect who I guess was quite busy. And this was in the country in Sweden on an island? No, actually, um, my grandmother was born on the family island. Her father, my great-grandfather, father who was a painter. He was the well-known painter Knut Ekwal and his wife Theresia Burkovic was um, a singer and uh, toured, around, toured around in Sweden and played for the king and, and, and the children, the, the older 
I mean, the, the older children, the four older children also all played music. So she had a quartet who were her children and she was singing and they were performing. And my grandmother was the seventh child and was the only one who was born on the island. So where was Viviana brought up? Mom was, she was born in Malmö mm -hmm. and brought up in Malmö. But of course, every summer they would go to the island. So she had a lot of experiences on the island. Because she was, um, she was quoted as saying about um, her mother's work as a sculptor, saying, I wasn't much fond of clay. Mother worked with clay, but I did like it when she carved in marble or wood. Messy clay was definitely not my medium. I prefer resistant material from which I can coax, as it were, a fluid curving movement. And that's interesting that she she grew up on her, in her mother's studio playing with different materials to find out what she liked working with. And then yes. in turn, you grew up on the floor of your mother's studio. So going to the island every summer and sort of living surrounded by animals um, the water, nature. Do you think that really influenced her searching to create this ultimate purity of form in her work? I believe that that influenced her a lot. But from what I understand, one of the greatest influences for her was actually when she was figure skating. A figure skating on the lakes and rivers? Or? On the lakes in Sweden, well, you know, it gets very cold, so especially on the lakes. I think she also figure skated um, for competitions. You know, when you figure skate, you do these eights. You actually figure skate an eight number. And um, when you look at all her Möbius jewelry, if you would open it up, it, uh, the Möbius is like the figure eight, which you put together. And the inside becomes the outside. And it's, it's the same form. And, and you can see it in all her Möbius and even in the swirls and... and um, that there is this this ice skating feel to it. And Möbius strip is the mathematical form with a one-sided surface known as the infinite eight. So that's why she called it Möbius. Exactly. Incredibly difficult to create in metal. Yes, in the way she created it. Um, because if you take a strip of paper, a long strip of paper, and you turn it and put it back together, then you have the Möbius. But she made it in a way that it's it's oblong and not round and you know nothing it becomes smaller and so she she perfected actually the shape of the mobiles which has got extraordinary movement in it which comes from the ice skating so she loved ice skating that must have been hard when she left Sweden and for the rest of her life she lived in places that she couldn't ice skate. Well, I mean, we lived in Germany for 10 years and she took me ice skating and oh, did she? taught me or tried to teach me. <laughs> and I think it's, it's um, you know, we're all neurodiverse in the family. And I think the balance of skating helped my mother very much also because um, it helps the, the frontal cortex of the brain. That's interesting. And so quite early on, she discovered what she could do with metal and she decided to pursue going to the city to work with a silversmith. What was her moment where she really thought silver is going to be my the thing that I work with? I'm not sure what her moment was, but I know that when she was at the art university in Stockholm, she was enrolled in several classes and she did not like painting because she couldn't express herself two-dimensional. And then she actually went 
to the um, furniture department and found some rattan. And then she found some wires and, you know, she didn't have money, so she couldn't use silver wire. And she started making jewelry with this brass wires. And I think from then on, she would have actually liked to do things in silver. But the defining moment, I don't know. So it was a gradual process, probably much more gradual than... Yeah, I think it was a more gradual process. And I mean, silver is beautiful because it's easy to work. It's easier to work with because it's it's a bit softer and it's softer than gold and also feels more organic on your skin and less pretentious. And my, my mom did not like pretense at all. That's why when, you know, when Diamonds, Our Girl's Best Friend with Marilyn Monroe came out, she was not caught up in that. And she started making jewelry with pebbles from the beach instead. So she's at Konstfak's School of Arts and Crafts in Stockholm. And, you know, having talked at the beginning about her groundbreaking life, I mean, I think in some ways... She, she she described herself as reckless. I've done reckless things. And one of the earliest things was to be pregnant when she went to school. I mean, she did appear to make her life very difficult. I mean, imagine trying to study with all the other students and you're, what, 18 or she was 19 and she's got a baby to feed. She's got to financially cope with the baby and study incredibly difficult. Yeah, I, she was, I, it's quite amazing. She was the first student to have a baby and she would bring my big sister and park her in the baby wagon next to the headmaster's car because that was the only car in the parking lot obviously because back in the day not so many people were um, driving cars this is in 1946 and uh, I mean I, I have personally huge respect and admiration for her as a human being because she was, uh, for me, my biggest role model is my mother. Because she encompassed that artistic desire with managing to be an excellent mother, which is we know is, is very hard. And the feminism, I mean, you know, in 1946, that was unheard of. Most, most women weren't even studying. No, you're right. And then she was a single mother on top of it. And then she went to Paris... And is that's where she met your, your father? Well, no, actually what happened was in um, 1948, her parents gave her as a present a trip to France and they were babysitting my big sister. And um, somehow, I don't know how she ended up in southern France on the beach collecting stones for her jewelry. That, that's where she got the idea to collect stones for the jewelry because she was looking at them and they looked so beautiful and they had been polished by the sea for hundreds of years. Or, and for her, that was the most beautiful alternative to precious stones. And um, this man came up to her and asked her what she was doing and took the stone and had a little, took out his little knife and carved this face on the stone. And I don't know what happened to that stone. And then wished her good luck and left. And then this child came up, this little boy, and he asked, oh, oh, what did Picasso want from you? What, what did Picasso say? And she wasn't even aware it was Picasso. So that was her first encounter with Picasso, by chance. How funny. And then she re-met him later. She re-met him again in 1955. And there's a wonderful picture that we'll post on Instagram of her with Picasso, looking at one of her silver collars with beach pebbles. Exactly. Then a couple of years later, Mariana Greenwood, who was a, a jazz photographer mainly, organized somehow that, that uh, mom had an exhibition 
with Picasso at the Picasso Museum, which ran from 1958 to 1960. So it was his pencil drawings on the walls and her jewelry in in, um, showcases in the middle. Incredible honor that he wanted to exhibit with her. Yes, and she was very young. She was 31. He said, oh, if I would have made jewelry, I would have liked to make jewelry like like Torin or something like that. Yeah, because he did make some. And we we did a podcast a little while, if anyone's interested to scroll back through our library. We we did go, um, there was an exhibition in Barcelona about the jewels Picasso made. So, oh, interesting. But like her, I think, you know, it, it was nothing about being precious. Mm-hmm. It was much more the sort of emotional input and uh, egalitarian aspect of it that anyone could wear it doing anything. Yes, my mother and my father actually met in 1955 in Stockholm. And your father was an African-American artist. Yes. And then they settled in Paris. They settled in Paris? It sounds like, as your mother said, it was not strictly comme il faut to have a mixed marriage in Paris at that time. <laughs> uh, not at all. In 1956, um, it was almost unheard of. I mean, it wasn't as bad as in the States. Because there, my father could have been, you know, could have been killed for being with a white woman. But um, it was difficult. And, and, you know, the French kind of didn't look well upon that. They were subject to racism, weren't they? And um, uh, Yes, they were subject to racism. And um, she said, and you'll tell us if this is true, that they, they really, it was the jazz circles, the people like Billie Holiday who embraced them. And they they mainly socialized with the kind of jazz community. Yeah, they mainly socialized with the jazz community, with writers, artists who were either living in Paris or frequented Paris. And um, yes, they were more in the black community. Mm. Who accepted them. Yes, who accepted them. And she was, as we've alluded to, this incredibly fiercely feminist, independent woman. And I think there's a, a book of her conversations with um, a writer called Anne Weston. And she quoted your mother, which is what I love, is that she said, I was thinking about the type of woman who went around in mink coats and extravagant jewellery, which they kept in bank vaults for fear of theft, showing off how much their husbands were worth or just how much they were worth to their husbands. To me, this was horrendous. I thought women should be independent and go out to work. And her jewellery really expressed that, didn't it? It expressed for young women or women who didn't have such a strong self-esteem to wear this, to to reflect attention to a woman giving her value in her own right. Exactly. Um, you can see that in some of her, um, you know, in some of her early jewellery where you have a choker, where you can hang a pendant, but you can also wear it without the pendant. And those pendants would be in crystal. They would never be in precious stones. Yeah, a lot of them were actually the pendants. um, The first pendants she used, the drops she used were not even crystal. They were glass. Mm -hmm. They were actually, she had bought a whole pouch of glass crystals which were for chandeliers at a flea market and that's all these and you know in all beautiful kind of colors and um that that was the predecessors to the ones where where we're actually using rock crystal or or rose quartz or you know more semi-precious stones but the whole idea was that you should be able to wear this jewelry while you're hanging 
your laundry or which was still very much a woman's job at the time and um, going to the theater or going to work. So you would wear this this uh, bracelet and, and um, this collar during the day. And then, you know, maybe you didn't have time to go home and, and, and um, get changed before you went out. And then you would just hang in the drops and put on your earrings and hang in the drop on the on also on the bracelet. And then you would be ready, you know, and have some extra set of shoes with you. And then you would be able to go out. So she wanted her jewelry to be uh, practical. And you can also see it on all the forms she makes. They are all sculpted to the body. So it's comfortable to wear and you, you can do anything with it. I mean, you can even go to sleep, forget, you know, to take off your jewelry and it doesn't bother you. Do you sleep in it? You've got the most beautiful silver collar on today with a drop. What drop have you got on, Marcia? I, I have a very old pebble. It's beautiful. I inherited. It almost looks like it... Um, could be um, onyx or a onyx or a large black diamond just with this subtle sheen. It's beautiful. Yeah. Do you ever sleep in that? Is it comfortable? No, no, <laughs> I don't. I don't sleep in my jewelry. <laughs> I don't either. I always take mine off. Well, I don't know. It probably has happened. <laughs> You know. Yeah, so she was she was really um, uh, before her time, way before her time, because this is now common for people to say all day long jewellery, but it wasn't at that time. Women really dressed up, as she said, in their fur coats and diamonds. Yes, and um, I don't know, I think I have inherited that from her also, that I'm I'm not too keen on, on all this to seem and not to be. I think also in the way she dressed, she was very expressive in showing her own personality. So she dressed in colours and she always had, you know, some crazy striped pants or... Um, and she made a lot of her, her clothes herself, even. Did she? She bought a lot of Marie Meko back in the day and, and sewed her own clothes so they would fit to her jewellery. And, and she was very creative. She, I mean, she was a very good seamstress also, yes. She was very beautiful. She was a great person to wear her jewellery. She was very beautiful. She was very beautiful, but I don't think she really knew it, mm-hmm. you know, because um, she grew up, most of her friends were boys, and she, she grew up. You know, when when we still had gender roles, uh, yeah, people used to call it a tomboy. I, I don't like that expression, but, um, you know, that's what they said at the time. So she wasn't very feminine, so to say. So what word would you put at it now? What? How would you describe it now? I think she was a bit more gender neutral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how did she first um, get together with George Jensen, the great... Danish silversmith that started in the sort of 19th century and still has stores all around the world. How, how did she get together with them initially? Well, she met the director then and he had a look at a collection of her jewellery and says, we, 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 we will take this right away and took her whole collection after she had been for years having her own workshop with um, a, a lot of jewellers or smiths who were working for her. So for her, it was a huge relief to not have to sit every day and produce and do the production. But now she had the time to just be 100% creative and uh, make new things all the time. So because if you have to do the same thing over and over, 
um, it doesn't leave you that much time for being more creative. And I guess they had the workshops that were able to cope with her technical innovations. Because also she had her own techniques. So, um, you know, she also obviously had to teach them what kind of techniques she was using to produce. Because even the Möbius, that's very, very hard to to perfect. Yeah. What do you think she'd think now that these designs that she created for them all that time ago are still their bestsellers and still reproduced? Um, frankly speaking, I don't think she would be surprised. I mean, she passed away only 17 years ago or something and You know, having children and grandchildren and, you know, I think she could also always see that this would go on because her pieces are so timeless. And so much has changed since the 40s until 2004 when she passed away. Um, I think the biggest changes we've seen in history was during those 80 years or the last 100 years so what because she had sort of gone from I suppose when she was born it was kind of like horse and cart almost to the technological age it's an extraordinary span yeah she was born in 1927 exactly so I, I, I don't think she would have been surprised um well they are they have this sort of eternal modernity it just doesn't fade at all you know just looking at it now and how many times have I seen that's that neck piece that you're wearing, it still just strikes you straight away when you look at it as something extraordinarily modern. Mm. You lived in very many different countries. How how was she influenced by other cultures? Well, I mean, she spoke six languages. So that's one influence for sure. So do you think sort of early cultures, like early Egyptian work or early African work, do you think that might have seeped into her her mindset? Um, and come out in her work? Actually, it did in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. In the very beginning when she was doing the rattan and the the, the brass um, jewelry, that was very much inspired by African culture. But I think after that, she mostly went into um, work with inspiration from nature, uh, be it water be it, uh, you know, the ice skating or uh, I remember her making a ring, which was kind of big. And when you went like that, it would flip. And it was because she had been sitting in her garden or in Indonesia and she saw this bird, which used to, it's called pranjak, the bird, and it goes, Bleep! you know, and then the tail goes up like that. And then, uh, you know, she made a ring like that. Or also, um, when you look at her vortex and the so-called swirl earrings, they were inspired by water. When you row a boat, it makes, the oar makes these uh, vortices. So actually what she had done is she had um, taken a sheet of silver and sawed a vortex into it. And then she polished everything on both sides and took two thongs, one on this side and one of the, on the other side, and pulled it out in the fire. So it became, instead of being one-dimensional, it became three-dimensional. So um, I, she was mostly inspired by nature. Also the lotus uh, leaves. She had lotus flowers on, on the lake in front of the garden in Indonesia. So she also made these earrings and pendants uh, for George Jensen, which are, you know, which are 
A lotus leaf, actually, stylized. And she worked on um, social projects in Indonesia, didn't she? Yes. The first time she came to Indonesia, she met a young opal cutter, actually made a few designs. He had a, this little workshop. And um, so she made a few designs for him. And um, then when we moved to Indonesia in 1978, uh, she started a much stronger collaboration with him and... and um, taught several goldsmiths how to do her how to, how to make her jewelry and using they were using stones and shells and you know all materials from Indonesia why did you move to Indonesia oh actually we moved to Indonesia because my mother was um part of a spiritual movement and um the founder lives or came from Indonesia and she wanted to be closer to the community where it originated from. And so that gave you a very spiritual basis for your life. Well, actually, she joined this movement in 1968 already. Mm -hmm. When, um, you know, after my father had left, she was going through a very difficult time. And um, this helped her to move on yeah, because she was in, in very much despair. Uh, with two young children and um, and her marriage breaking up. Mm -hmm. And there was a community in Germany, and that's where we moved to in 1968, to be with other like-minded people, and um, which actually was very, very good for me personally to grow up in this community with um, people, you know, who were artistic and, and there was a lot of music and arts and... and um, you know, good morals. And, and um, so this was kind of a continuation, you know, from Germany to move closer to to where it originated from. Do you think her um, drive to work and to work all the time, do you think that affected um, her relationships that she had? Um, probably, mm. you know. Um, she was quoted as saying she was no good at communicating verbally. She'd rather speak in the language of silver. Yeah, personally, I think that's 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 <laughs> that was one of her hang-ups because I understand that because I speak five languages myself, and I don't feel that I can express myself properly, well, intellectually in any language, and I think that's what she was feeling. But um, I think she could communicate very well. But she probably felt safe in her studio. She was in control. She knew what was happening in there. Yes, yes. So has there been a legacy for you, in for, for the family in her jewellery? Has, has anyone tried to follow in her footsteps and, and create jewellery? Um, actually, no. My sister was, I mean, she started art, but she, she ended up also having a child very early. So she ended up... Um, studying languages or and being a librarian. My brother is a jazz bass player and um, I have never been interested either in making jewelry. A lot of people push me and just like if your father was a, a carpenter, you're not going you don't have to be a carpenter. And I've always been interested in music and singing, but um, since I personally also got my first child when I was 21, and have been in several relationships and um, only started singing now at the age of 59. So I'm starting a new profession now. Probably inherited from your great-great-grandmother. Yeah, 
Exactly. Um, it's amazing how these things kind of come through the DNA. Yeah. So maybe, you know, you'll have a grandchild who'll take up jewellery design, something like that. <laughs> yes, who knows? And when we talked about cultural influences, I mean, what I should have mentioned really or talked about is something that we talked about again on the podcast a while ago is Viking jewellery, that sort of Scandinavian um, style of silver ornamentation and neck bands that was part of Viking heritage. That must have influenced her, mustn't it? Because the Vikings used to wear these big silver torques and it was part of their sort of economic resource because then they could use it to barter or buy food wherever they were in the world. And I thought there is that sort of that that culture of those big silver neck bands. Actually, I've never thought about that. But I mean, you are absolutely right. Mm. It must have been an influence for her because all of her jewelry. But, you know, it's it's also you, you grow up being a Scandinavian. Of course, you're going to be influenced by your own culture and and your own heritage cultural heritage. So there is that that Viking inheritance and definitely and that sort of purity, that simplicity of style, isn't there? That yeah, it's very Scandinavian. Mm. I I mean, um almost everything my mom has made has this very Scandinavian simple clean lines and it's you know, it's it's the furniture is like that, the Swedish furniture, you know, and um even their textiles, and um, it's it's always these clean Scandinavian lines, which reminds me of a lot of the Japanese also, the Japanese art. And and my, my mother was absolutely um, fascinated by Japanese art. So there might have been some influence from there also. Uh-huh. So did she visit? Yes, yes. That was her, her dream was was to visit Japan, and then she finally went to Japan, and she was she was in heaven. I remember her coming back, just being so fulfilled and so um, so happy. Where did she visit? Well, she had an exhibition, and then of course she was in Tokyo, but she visited Kyoto also, and was very um, taken in, having been there very touched. And of course, she came home and, and yeah, and, and, you know, she had gone to some beautiful tea ceremonies and uh, was just really touched by the culture and the kindness of the people. And what did she wear every day, um, jewellery wise? What were her favourite pieces to wear? She was always wearing her watch. And then she used to wear her brooch, you know, that swirly brooch, the big one George Jensen makes. That one she always wore uh-huh. on her heart. And then she, she used to always have a choker on. So not, not always rings and earrings. Yeah, yeah, of course, the Mibius ring. She was always wearing a silver Mibius ring. Did she ever change her pieces or did she pretty much wear the same thing every day? Yeah, she changed. But I think it's <laughs> it's a bit like me also. You, you go with the, like the same piece for three months and then you move on to another one. Then you come back to... And then when she would go out, then she would put something else. So, you know, if she was invited to something whatever then she would put her gold watch on and some gold jewelry and but she was mostly wearing silver because she didn't really work with precious metals either did she not much not much and never precious stones oh well at a certain time yes a little because now and then she had someone come and they had their diamonds and would love to have something made and then she made a special piece for someone with 
you know, with their own diamonds. So as private commissions. Yes, private commissions. And do, do you have a thought as to why you think her jewellery has endured? Well, I don't know. Me being the daughter saying that maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it sounds a bit pretentious or, but I, I just, in my eyes, it's the most beautiful jewellery I've ever seen. And uh, it's so timeless and it's ageless. It's most of it also is actually genderless. It's it's just so simple and so clear and pure in lines that it can also fit to anything you wear. It doesn't matter if you're wearing jeans or if you're wearing, you know, a haute couture dress or, you know, or rags. I don't know. For me, it's just beautiful. And it, it enhances the person. You know, it doesn't take away from the person wearing it. It just enhances um, their look or their complexion. Also, sometimes, you know, if you have certain stones and it reflects the color of your eyes or she said it she could work with a freshwater pearl to reflect the light and set a woman's eyes and her teeth a sparkle thus primarily drawing attention to the girl herself and giving her her value in her own right exactly i think that's a lovely the loveliest reason to to use a pearl that i've ever heard yes and do you think she got to the end of her design repertoire or do you think there was more that she would have wanted to have done um, you know, she worked very intuitively. Often she said that the ideas were coming to her. So it, it, I think, especially in the end, she wasn't working to do more or that, that, that wasn't her, her idea of, of making jewelry, but it was more to receive inspiration and do what comes out instead of forcing it. So I'm sure if she would still be alive, she would probably still be sitting in her workshop doing that, whatever she's doing at the age of, yeah, she would be 94 now. But, you know, I don't think that she didn't do anything she wanted to. She was satisfied with what she had produced, which is lovely. And lovely for you to know that. Yes, yes, yes. But I know, I mean, I, she probably would have made much more if she was there, but... Um, I don't think she regretted anything. I mean, the way she passed away was so beautiful. Um, she really taught us how to live with dignity, how to die with dignity. I took care of her for the last year and a half and the last three weeks in the hospice, I was with her every day. Mm -hmm. I slept there and um, it was extremely uplifting. She was so sweet and so... Um, aware of what was going on and what she was going through and how she was leaving. And um, I, it was an amazing experience, which I'm so, so grateful for to have been able to or have been allowed to witness, which is very rare. Actually, I would I would love one day that when I leave this planet that I can leave with so much love and dignity and kindness and understanding and acceptance. Mm -hmm. And she's left all of us this great legacy. Yes. I would like to add that my mother was, besides all all the beautiful jewelry she made and everything, she was a, an extremely kind and um, supportive human being. She supported a lot of people morally and um, also financially. Um, she has left us, the family, a, an amazing legacy of... of um, of her work, but also who she was as a, a person and um, has been a role model for many, many women, especially. 
Yes, it's interesting. She was lots of dichotomies, as you say, a role model for women, but genderless, yes. really. Yeah, at the time, especially for women, obviously, because women were, <laughs> were oppressed. I mean, we still are partially oppressed, and even in our Western, so-called Western countries. So, but I mean, she, she, has, she has been um, paving the way because, you know, I'm a feminist. My kids are feminists. Um, you know, all, all my children are feminists, be they whatever genders they are. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a queer family, so most of us are queer in the family. And, um, and we're all feminists, so... And I, I'm sure it goes on to the next generation. Thank you so much for talking about her life and sharing your reminiscences, Marta. There'll be so many people who will so enjoy hearing this, having seen her jewellery and admired it, to hear a little bit more about her. I thank you. Thank you. This was very beautiful to do this. Thank you for the opportunity to speak about my mother and her life. Thank you for joining us. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, go to our website, carawalton.com slash podcasts. And if you liked it, please share it any way you can. And you'll find us on any of the platforms where you find your podcasts, where we'd love a rating and a comment. And do subscribe to the podcast feed. I'll be back again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. And I'm going to take you mudlarking. I'm going to be talking with the best-selling author, Laura Maiklim, who brought mudlarking to a wide audience, not least Stanley Tucci, Hollywood A-lister, who now goes mudlarking with his son, saying, it's a thing some of us do, the nerdier ones. So we're going to explore what he means. And also I'll be talking with Ruth Tomlinson, the jeweller who found some garnets in the river, and she made them into a piece of jewellery. So we're going to talk to her about that too. So please join me again in two weeks and thanks for listening. Goodbye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan. Music and editing by Tim Thornton. Graphics by Scott Bentley. Illustration by Geordie Labanda. And you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton. <laughs>